begin with introduction. Yeah. So yeah, you can start and introduce yourself. Perfect. Hi. So, uh, so hi, my name is Zul, um, located in California. Uh, I am a learning Marxist-Leninist, excuse me, um, particularly as it pertains to Armenia and the Armenian people. And I'm dedicated not only uh, to sort of learning theory in general and its more practical applications to various parts of the world, uh, both past and present, but I'm also pretty devoted to fully uncovering the uh, material history of the Armenian nation and how the you know, science of Marxism-Leninism can be applied to the conditions we face today. Um, I also do want to throw it out there just to clarify that unless we specifically sort of dive into the ideology and various tenets of the Armenian Communist Party or ACP, uh, otherwise all views are going to be my own, so I'm not affiliated with, nor reflective of any organization nor, uh, nor party. Awesome, thanks so much for that intro. And then yeah, I guess we can kind of start off with a brief history of communism in Armenia and talk a little bit about how communism has changed uh, throughout Armenia, in particular when it was a part of the USSR and then today. Perfect, awesome. So, um, so sort of before just diving into politics and, uh, and the more recent sort of historical events in Armenia, I do wanna share a little bit just about uh, Armenian history and culture, you know, things that are important to us, just so our listeners are not only a little familiar with my own homeland, but uh, so everyone else, um, so, so that's sort of like everything else that we'll talk about can be properly contextualized as a, large, as a larger part of our history. And I do feel that because of our large diaspora, there's a very wide range of people who do know Armenians or at least have heard about Armenia, uh, but they don't really know too much beyond that. So I do hope, so I do hope that it may be helpful to share just a little bit about us. So Armenia today is a relatively small country of about 3 million people in Western Asia. It's basically tucked in between the major countries of Turkey to our west. Uh, we've got Iran to our south. We have Russia to our far north. And of course, also sharing borders with Georgia and, uh, and Azerbaijan. The historic range of Armenians, however, in, in our, in, in our uh, indigenous lands, our homeland, it extends a lot further than that. So prior to the genocide, which killed and displaced up to a million and a half people, our homeland roughly stretched east of the Euphrates in Turkey, um, all the way to the eastern edge of the South Caucasus Mountains, known today as Artsakh, now mostly occupied by Azerbaijan. And then vertically speaking, we go from like South Georgia to around where Turkey meets Iraq. And our capital and largest city is Yerevan, whose skyline is dominated by Mount Ararat, a national and holy symbol of the Armenian people, and uh, the mountain where, uh, where Noah's Ark also allegedly had landed, according to the biblical narrative. So um, the, the mountain is, however, under occupation by Turkey today. Now, there's definitely a lot of history that you know, could be covered. Uh, the Armenian people have existed in modern-day Armenia and Western Armenia, which is occupied by Turkey since the Bronze Age, right? So uh, political states have existed there for like 3,000 to 4,000 years. So the Armenian people as a cultural entity have a very direct geographical, national, cultural sort of evolution on this land uh, for that long. So we're really just as native as it gets on, on those mountains and plateaus. Um, just for example, the Armenian language itself is so old, it even includes loanwords from Sumerian. So uh, it is just, it's had that much contact with, with the ancient peoples of the area. So uh, the site of Yerevan was even founded as the fortress of Erebuni more than a generation before the founding of Rome. It's the same age as the ancient cities of Babylon and Nineveh. So, uh, but unlike those cities, Yerevan today is a large city of over a million people. So when I say I'm going to simplify a lot of history, there's definitely a lot of history that's going to be simplified. So just the general timeline will begin at around the kingdom of Urartu in like the ninth century BC, uh, which was a multicultural confederation of both Armenian and non-Armenian tribes in Anatolia and the South Caucasus. And it was a state that resisted very strongly resisted the expansionism of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And then, and then um, eventually Uartu was then conquered by the Medes and then uh, the Persian Achaemenid Empire. And then 
After Alexander the Great conquered them, Armenia then found itself in a period of independence led by the Artaxia dynasty in the second century BC, uh, which for a short few decades also forged itself an empire under Tigran the Great, where Armenia ruled from the Caspian Sea all the way until basically uh, like the gates of Jerusalem, more or less. Uh, it, it, it elevated itself to the most powerful kingdom east of Rome. But this was only true for like 30 years, basically like one generation uh, before Rome invaded and Armenia since then didn't really take any much projects of, uh, of, of empire building since. But afterwards, for a couple of centuries, Armenia consistently found itself between the Roman West and the Persian East, um, which you would like constantly pitch them against one another to gain favor of one emperor over the other or strike some sort of, you know, like beneficial deal for Armenia. Uh, this is something you'll see today. Uh, you'll see this a lot today. Armenia will consistently try to be the intermediary between the West and the East. And this isn't like a new phenomenon. It's rather like a product of being at the crossroads of empire, really, uh, you know, between Europe and Asia. Um, our culture, our language, our politics is very much sort of proof of this contradiction. Now, Armenia up to this point practiced a syncretic, uh, sort of like a syncretized religion, borrowing elements from Iranian Zoroastrianism, from uh, Greco-Roman and West Asian paganism into native Armenian practices and mythology. And there was also a small minority of Jews on the Armenian plateau and a growing minority of um, Nestorian Christians. But in 301 AD, a very famous date for Armenians, Armenia officially adopted Christianity as a state religion for the kingdom, being the first country to do so, uh, the first nation to officially adopt Christianity. And not many know this, but the Armenian church itself is actually completely independent from all other major branches of Christianity as well. So it's neither Catholic, it's neither Eastern Orthodox, of course, it's not Protestant, uh, but a very special branch of Christianity that's sort of only in communion with the Copts in, in, in uh, North Africa, the Assyrians in West Asia, Ethiopians and Eritreans in East Africa, and then St. Thomas Christians in uh, South India. Anyway, so after adopting Christianity, the very first national church in history was built, named Echmiadzin, located about 10 miles west of Yerevan, is a gorgeous giant cathedral. Uh, in fact, the church sort of became the blueprint for most church architecture across the world. So Armenians definitely hold a lot of pride in that, uh, particularly. And then additionally, about, this, uh, about a century later in 405 AD, the Armenian theologian Meshrup Mostots created the unique Armenian alphabet that we share today. And then after this golden age, you know, a couple hundred years, Armenia is once again victim to a lot of foreign invasions and conquests. By 428 AD, it was partitioned between the Eastern Romans and the Persians. By the seventh century, it was absorbed into the Arab caliphates. Uh, between the ninth century and like around the 11th century, it was once again independent under the Bagratuni dynasty. But then our capital city of Ani was sacked during the devastating Turkic invasions, which, uh, you know, the entire population of our city, over like 100,000 people, uh, were slaughtered or enslaved, uh, events still deeply remembered in stories and poems um, in, in, in Armenian histories. And it was during this period as well that Armenian refugees also founded the Cilician Kingdom on the southeastern coast of what's today Turkey. And then sort of after that, Armenia proper was under a lot of various regimes. You've got the Georgians and then the Mongols and then various Turkic and Kurdish dynasties and once again falling under Persian rule. Um, but sort of by the 19th century, you've got Tsarist Russia that rolled into Eastern Armenia and then the Ottomans had already for a while occupied Western Armenia. Then by 1915, you have uh, the Turkish Ottoman Empire. They began conducting a a uh, massive extermination campaign of all Armenians from its land and uh, other lands in what we call the Armenian Genocide, where over 1.5 million Armenians, which was about half of the Armenian uh, population in the world at the time, were either slaughtered or died to conditions such as starvation or the elements. And uh, we were also permanently exiled, uh, property and land stolen in the process of you know, settler colonialism and capital accumulation. Uh, wiping this out from a vast majority of our indigenous lands, which alone is, of course, a whole other topic to, uh, to sort of explore. Uh, my own family, personally, are indigenous to the city of Adana in Turkey before escaping as uh, refugees to Egypt and then finding their way through to the Armenian SSR in the late 1940s. 
Then as the Russian Civil War erupted in 1917, uh, Armenia sort of found itself in a period of independence for the first time in centuries, though this was a very uh, turbulent time before the Red Army then marched in and Armenia joined as part of the USSR in 1922. And then ever since the dissolution of the USSR, Armenia has once again uh, been independent since 1991 until, uh, until present day. So now that you know, all that context has, has been built, uh, we could sort of now start unpacking what, um, what the principles of Marxism-Leninism and, and, and how they were applied in, in Armenia. But before diving to that, though, there is some context that, that needs to be formed, you know, the context of what what socialism found itself in, in Armenia. And of course, you know, it didn't just pop up in a vacuum, right? So Armenia, uh, as I just mentioned, was part of the Tsarist Russian Empire. And then following the start of the Russian Civil War in 1917, and then the subsequent um, Ottoman invasion in the spring of 1918, uh, the South Caucasus being what's today uh, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, uh, they organized a multinational parliament and then declared independence as the Trans-Caucasian Democratic Federative Republic, or the TDFR, on, uh, on April 22nd. Uh, but this was a state primarily led by Mensheviks, by the uh, emerging caucus bourgeoisie, and by landowners. So it wasn't like a revolutionary uh, state by any means. Um, but it was becoming clear that these sort of contradicting interests of these various bourgeois classes were just too divergent. And uh, about a month later, Georgia declared independence as a German protectorate. And then, uh, and then, and then remember, this is during World War I. So the Ottomans and, and the Germans are allies. Uh, then two days later, you have Azerbaijan declared independence as a de facto Turkish vassal. Uh, so sort of Armenia is left in this position alone, you know, just to fend off that Turkish invasion that was going on since, uh, since spring. And just, just remember, this is also during the Armenian genocide. And now the Ottomans itself, they're like at the gates of Yerevan. Um, however, after a profound struggle against occupation in a series of rather extremely improbable Armenian military victories against the larger Ottoman army, the invasion is uh, halted just 25 miles from, from our capital city. Despite this, despite you know, all that had, uh, had been won over, Armenia still didn't really have any more options at this point. Uh, so it was sort of forced to sign the Treaty of Batum in the summer of 1918, a rather terrible treaty where the North was under Ottoman military occupation. Uh, the East and the South were annexed by the Ottomans, in fact, including our second largest city of Gumri, of, uh, of, of Gumri. And then terrible war crimes were being perpetrated against the Armenian people once again. And uh, the South is actually also the majority of our farmland. So Armenia, you know, it's pretty mountainous. So we don't have, you know, much farmland. So you could just stop and imagine the condition that Armenia was in right now. It was receiving thousands upon thousands of refugees from the East with no farmland to sustain them with. There is no civil, judicial, le legislative, executive infrastructure for government because it was just under Russia and other empires for a century. And suddenly it has to be a you know, modern functioning country, right? Its population was being genocided and its perpetrators were still sort of ravaging uh, the land. Uh, this is the condition that modern Armenia was born in. And it's famously been likened to that of the birth of like a sickly child. It's, it's a very, uh, very common um, sort of thing we say uh, about, about the early years of Armenia. Uh, sort of a country born out of so much suffering. And the worst part is, is that it didn't even stop there because it was still summer, right? Armenia is located on a high plateau with freezing winters. And when that came along, compounded by the facts that most of our farmland was just stolen, the infrastructure to house the many refugees were just non-existent. Thousands more were killed from starvation, from the cold, from, uh, from malaria and typhus and uh, what, 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 which had developed into an epidemic. So 1918 and early 1919 were just sort of years in the Armenian memory that, you know, personally, even I wouldn't wish upon like the worst of my enemies, you know? And this is all while still the Armenian genocide was going on in occupied Western Armenia, which had began in 1914. 
and uh, concluded by like the early 1920s. So, and then that was already so brutal that the uh, that the word genocide was was coined after it. So, continuing on to the rest of 1919, Armenia began not only to to stand up on its feet, but it was also able to sort of like launch that offensive for its um, struggle for liberation, despite everything else that was going on. So. Uh, the Ottomans retreated out of Gyumri, which was occupied since summer of 1918. Then Armenia uh, liberated Kars, which is today occupied by Turkey. Armenia liberated Nakhichevan, today occupied by Azerbaijan. So really mid-1919 to mid-1920 was sort of like that height of that modern Armenian liberation struggle. And then once again, for the second time, Turkey invades this time not as the Ottoman uh, Empire, but as the newly founded Turkish Republic and uh, in October of 1920, resulting in, again, the murder or exile of another quarter of a million civilians. Kars is reoccupied, Nakhichevan is reoccupied. They push well into Armenian territory and they occupy uh, Gyumri again. And, you know, all while this is happening, uh, the Red Army, um, having just took having just uh, taken over Azerbaijan, was now marching into Armenia uh, with the support of um, Bolshevik Armenian uprisings. And the Red Army came in from the east, the Turks came in from the west. They sort of like met halfway. And uh, after a series of treaties, um, established the modern borders that we see today. So now that we've talked about all this context, you know, like what was going on right before socialism arrived into Armenia, we can only just sort of begin to understand what the Soviets came into, right? The country that was still barely trying to stay afloat, a country still hosting thousands of refugees, still traumatized by uh, Turkish war crimes and genocide and uh, dispossessed from all their belongings, a uh, country starving, a country um, plagued by disease. Uh, but despite all this, that was that was happening, a country that was still having a very intimate and a very revolutionary liberation war and had succeeded for a short period before being invaded by Turkey again, twice in, a, in a, just a handful of years. And we haven't even began talking about the murder campaign by the Azerbaijani army in Karbakh. Uh, thousands were being slaughtered there, more refugees coming in. And uh, the Soviets came in and they just sort of offered stability right and there's a lot to talk about in regards to that specifically being what socialism was like in in armenia and uh firstly of course i'll, I'll happily discuss the positives right there was there was a lot of that but i'm also going to share more about the failures actually and the reason why i'm going to do this is because i don't think much is going to be a, uh you know like accomplished by just being uh, very nostalgic, right? I want us to sort of like learn from the mistakes that were that were done in order to grow and progress in our own future. And uh, I want other people in their struggle for liberation in their countries to also learn from this too. So what was sort of going on that was working? And I can basically summarize this by saying that it was predominantly great in its uh, in its in its economic growth and its standard of living, which far exceeded any other point in, in Armenian history. Now, was everyone living in, in like post-scarcity? Of course not, but it was progressing upwards faster than in any other period yet seen in, in Armenia. Uh, for example, this rather tiny agrarian country with almost no modern economic base uh, suddenly became an industrial powerhouse relative to its size. It's been retrospectively dubbed as the Silicon Valley of the Soviet Union. Um, Armenia produced so much. It was a net exporter in chemicals and metals and construction material and industrial machinery, technology, um, all factories that are actually closed today. So in the 1930s, when the Soviet Union was having its economic boom, that being as the rest of the world was, was in a depression, Armenia was experiencing growth 1.4 times that of the average levels of growth in the entire Soviet Union, which was already one of the fastest growing economies in the world by that point. So Armenia was very, it was just, its economic growth was extreme during this period. 
um, every year between the 1920s to the 1940s, Armenia's economy was growing by nearly 20% exponentially every single year. Um, as of 2016, the real average monthly salaries are still lower than in 1990. So you could just, you know, just, just imagine that, uh, that economic growth that was happening during the Soviet era. Uh, unemployment was less than 2% in 1990. Now it's over 20%, right? It's been 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, life expectancy. In, in a country that was just subject to brutality, to disease, to starvation, was higher than in the United States, right? Uh, today, it's three years lower. Uh, one third of Armenians before socialism suffered from malaria, one third of Armenians. And by the 60s, malaria was eliminated alongside smallpox, alongside uh, cholera and, and other, uh, other such diseases. Uh, there were 44 times more hospitals in Armenia in the 60s than in 1914, and 97 times more doctors. Uh, the rate of literacy, right? Another big one. In 1897, the rates of, uh, of literacy were 9.2% in Armenia. It became nearly 100% by the 1930s. Many thousands of schools, of uh, universities, libraries, cultural centers, opera houses, uh, concert halls, art establishments, um, art establishments, they're all being um, extensively built and uh, the culture was, uh, was having its golden age during that time. Uh, agrarian output, that's another big one, it increased by 4.5 times with 1,500 canals and other, and other irrigation systems were being built in the dry river valleys across Armenia. And this is, again, in stark comparison to the rather apocalyptic conditions faced by Armenians between 1915 and 1920, what, uh, what I just talked about. Um, so these sorts of decades following were the highest standards of living in Armenian history up to that point. But sort of the, uh, the failure here, or at least one of the failures of the USSR in general, uh, that being especially outside of the um, outside of the Russian SFSR, is that there was sort of a failure to nativize or indigenize the Communist Party, right? Now, of course, Lenin was particularly outspoken about nativization. Uh, he was, he was you know, very much in support in that, but sort of in many ways, his vision, outside of some exceptions, uh, never really fully materialized, at least not long enough to have a very notable mark. Uh, the USSR was very great with destroying the bourgeois superstructure, right? With uh, getting rid of like chauvinistic nationalism, with uh, reactionary forms of religion and, and whatnot. But where the USSR sort of failed at is recreating that socialist superstructure. The USSR was very focused on building a socialist economy, but one of its failures, at least in my mind, was building a socialist society, which is there's actually a difference there, right? It was sort of too mechanical in thinking that only a transition in the economic base can fully transform the, um, the superstructure. And it's actually one of those reasons that nearly every post-Soviet state has fallen back into such reactionary trends in, in religion, right? And nationalism and identity, right? Um, the, you know, like Eastern European states are some of the hotbeds in, of, of fascism today. Um, so, so, you know, as soon as that Soviet economy fell, because these superstructural trends were never fully replaced, right? They were only cracked down upon. Sure, that's that's great. You know, uh, attacking the bourgeois superstructure—that's awesome. But the attempt to replace it—that's a lot more important. And an active role in that was never really fully entirely tried, or even when they did, it just didn't really work that well. And the Armenian Communist Party was simply just too dogmatic and only really sought to, I guess, like copy and paste the structure that worked, you know, perhaps in Russia, right? But the conditions in Armenia were simply, were simply different, right? Different history, uh, different cultural, um, different role of religion, and so on and, and so forth. Uh, one of these differences, for example, is that Armenia had no notable proletariat. It was actually still fundamentally entirely feudal, even more so than in Russia, where at least a proletarian 
peasant alliance could advance the goals of the working class, Armenia was even further behind in its economic development and its uh, sort of economic backwardsness. In fact, uh, in fact, Lenin specifically wrote to the administrative body of the caucus to slow down the transition into socialism. This is a word by word uh, translation to slow down the transition because the conditions were simply just not fit uh, for Armenia or, or the caucus in general. And uh, this is also sort of why there weren't many Bolsheviks in pre-Soviet Armenia in the first place, because Bolshevikism in the context of that period was sort of very specific to the liberation of the industrial worker, right? Something that didn't exist in Armenia at the time. And this is sort of further evident by the fact that even many of the Armenian leaders of the Armenian Communist Party were not from Armenia. And what I mean by that is that they were Armenian, yeah, but they were predominantly Armenians from Russia, actually. So they had a very different economic historical development. Uh, the Armenians in Russia, they were a community that did, that actually did proletarianize, right? They were industrial workers, unlike Armenians in Armenia, which were mostly still serfs. So, uh, so leaders of the Armenian Communist Party were sort of not directly pulled out from the masses. They weren't Armenians who had direct experiences with what Armenia was going through in the years prior, um, you know, that pain, that suffering, uh, they weren't exactly part of that struggle. So many heads of the ACP simply did not um, understand many of the dynamics that were going on, uh, that Marxism-Leninism could have better solved if it was, you know, better molded to the conditions that Armenians were facing. Uh, they were Armenians from uh, from from uh, from uh, from Russia, like I said, who sought to copy and paste what was working in Russia from their experiences uh, uh, leading in Russia onto a very different landscape. Another sort of extremely important example is that the Soviet Union, including the Armenian Communist Party, for actually much of its early history, also um, restricted much of the conversation regarding the Armenian genocide. So though it wasn't denied per se, too much discourse was seen as was seen as nationalism, right? It actually took decades of protest until the first official memorial could be built, a full 50 years uh, after the genocide. So again, we see a very dogmatic approach of the ACP where instead of viewing nationalism through dialectics, right? Uh, acknowledging as many Marxist-Leninists in the developing world uh, in, in the developing world do today, that nationalism, though of course having a role in reaction, of course, also can serve a role in liberation and in progression, right? In revolution, right? Ask the Vietnamese, right? Ask Algeria, ask the uh, Palestinians or the Cubans. While the USSR simply did not allow nationalism to fully develop under a socialist superstructure. Um, other successful revolutions did uh, were able to fully um, put that part in, in, in part of their uh, political structure. Um, the USSR just simply did not really allow nationalism to become to become uh, like a liberation struggle. Um, so the Armenian liberation struggle didn't really ideologically mature um, as it had in Palestine or as it had by socialist in Africa and so on and so forth. So uh, one of my theories actually is that this is why Soviet patronism is so like undeniably tied to World War II because that was like one of the few exceptions that nationalism was so able to grow under a socialist superstructure and, and it's still stuck around, right? Um, but this was uh, definitely an opportunity lost in regards to the Armenian SSR, uh, that nationalism was not uh, developed to encompass the liberation struggle. And again, this is why so many ex-Soviet states so quickly fell into reactionary nationalism, right? Because there was no, uh, there's no liberating one to fill the void, you know? Uh, and in summary, those are really just my thoughts on uh, the socialist experience in, uh, in Armenia. Great, thank you so much. And uh, I'm curious about kind of continuing it into the modern day. And, you know, as you were mentioning, the, the question of nationalism is still very important. Um, there's this continuing thread as you as you were pointing out of the desire of the Soviet Union to kind of suppress nationalism to create more a federal system, of course, that is also kind of what Lenin was proposing. Um, and I wonder how this 
played out ultimately today uh, after the Soviet Union was dissolved in, in the modern Armenian state. Um, and in as well, like, you know, what has communism and the Communist Party of Armenia been like after the fall of the Soviet Union? What have been kind of their main, uh, what's their main political program? What have they been advocating for? So I guess more of the contemporary side of, of the situation. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, I would say that the Armenian uh, experience in the dissolution of the USSR was one of, if not the most violent experience in all of the post-Soviet states. Uh, the final years of the USSR was plagued by violent massacres and, and pogroms over the struggle for the, for the liberation of Karabakh, uh, premeditated and state-sponsored state ethnic cleansing um, in, in the Azerbaijani SSR, very reminiscent to the times of the genocide, uh, where up to 20,000 Armenians were ethnically cleansed from Sumgait in 19, uh, 1988. That's the third largest city of Azerbaijan. Uh, that same year, up to 100,000 were exiled from the Janza province, um, in, which is the second largest city of Azerbaijan. And then finally in Baku, the, the, the largest city, uh, more than 100,000 were expelled in, in 1990. Um, all of this includes murderers, robberies, sexual assault, uh, rapes, arson. Uh, the central government of the U USSR didn't even really do much to put an end to it. This is already like the late, uh, late 90s. So there's like a lot of other things going on, uh, you know, stability-wise. Uh, the Azerbaijani police would even purposely or sort of like block off the roads to and from the Armenian neighborhood, so they wouldn't even have the chance to, uh, to escape. And uh, again, you know, this isn't the Armenian genocide, at least not uh, the traditional dates of it, uh, you know, starting from uh, 1915, but this is literally like the late 80s and, and the 90s. Uh, and to avoid the bloodshed, uh, Karabakh declared independence as the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, uh, later named as the Republic of Artsakh, uh, before Azerbaijan was independent. And then when they officially seceded. Um, they invaded the newly formed Armenian Republic, and Armenia was pulled in to defend uh, their liberation struggle of the Artsakhi Armenians. And those years were just were just extremely brutal because not only do you have those typical post-Soviet experiences, right? You've got the poverty, the starvation, the uh, failing economy, the unemployment, right? The the, the shock therapy of uh, uh, market reforms, right? Uh, but there was also literally a war, uh, a war of extermination being waged against us. Uh, Azerbaijan, for example, shut off the gas supply, so there was no central heating, no electricity. Uh, and the rather extremely profound but costly uh, liberation struggle actually ended up being a success, you know, temporarily um, as Artsakh was, uh, was free, uh, was liberated until another uh, Turkish-backed genocidal invasion in the late uh, in late 2020, just like uh, just two years ago, uh, where most of Artsakh was once again um, once again fallen under under occupation. So the Armenian experience, in, you know, following the dissolution of the USSR, like I said, extremely bloody, probably probably the worst I think from from all the other uh, ex-Soviet states because. You know, of course, there's all that shock therapy that that, that ruined all those uh, post-Soviet states, but there's also that that war that was going on. And when talking about the ACP in specific, you know, its history and then it's more contemporary. Um, there's definitely a big difference. There's a big schism between the historical ACP and and the more modern ACP. Um, so, when specifically talking about the historical roots of the ACP, it's also very important to remember that uh, that class struggle is not unknown to Armenia, right? Armenia has historically has had a, a very volatile class dynamic. In fact, very well-known European peasant struggles actually originated from Armenia, very anti-feudal European peasant movements such as the Cathars and Western Europe or uh, the Bogomils and the Balkans, they actually originated from from the Armenian seventh century anti-church policy movements. And then you have the, from the uh, ninth to 11th century, you have the absolutely, absolutely militant Tundrakian movement that waged like total 
class war against the feudal landlords and that allegedly mobilized like most of the medieval peasantry in, in army at the time. Uh, and then you've got like 18th century, you've got the liberation struggle of, uh, of David Beck and other leaders against Iranian and, uh, and Turkic settlers who actually made it very clear that they're not fighting against, against Iranians or against Turks due to their uh, due to their religion or ethnic background, but they, but it was like the actual class relationship of exploitation that the settlers took part in. So, uh, so it's this sort of historical trend that the Armenian Communist Party wants to continue this revolutionary tradition uh, they want to protract. And while it may have had some success at first, uh, like I've gone off before, um, the party just really, just really wasn't. It just actually was very dogmatic, and um, I personally don't think we can very clearly say that the ACP truly inherited that revolutionary fervor. And it's in fact, it's been other Armenian Marxist-Leninists outside of the ACP who did nativize the Marxist-Leninist struggle, who did apply uh, the Marxist-Leninist science to the conditions of Armenia more properly, that I think are the true bearers of sort of that revolutionary and uh, and, uh, and liberatory struggles, such as, for example, Stepan Shahumyan, who was a very famous um, Bolshevik, who was actually part of the R Russian Bolshevik party. He led the struggle in Baku and is known as the Lenin, the Caucasus. Uh, he united the Georgian, Turkish, uh, Russian, and Armenian proletariat of the city into the Baku commune in the early phases of the Russian civil war. And then we've also got uh, the very well-respected uh, late Monte Melkonian. He was a, a truly uh, internationalist and revolutionary socialist freedom fighter. He was actually born and raised in California, and he grew up not even knowing Armenian. He actually only learned Armenia, um, Armenian, I think, I think by his late 20s or even early 30s, so like literally not even that early on. Uh, but he took part in the struggle against the Shah during the Iranian revolution, and then he also fought against Zionists and other reactionaries in the Lebanese Civil War. And then he also eventually joined Asala, the uh, now inactive Marxist-Leninist um, Armenian Secret Army for the Liberation of, of Armenia, which was jointly organized with the Palestinian PFLP, the Palestinian Front for the, for the Liberation of, uh, of Palestine, before he went on to serving in the Artsakh Liberation War, beginning in 1992. And uh, unfortunately, he was martyred in 1993 and, uh, but he did leave behind a lot of letters and, uh, and writings on the role of like Armenian nationalism, of the Armenian state, of Artsakh for, for Marxist-Leninists uh, to, to learn from. So I really think that it's these, uh, these leaders who need to be highlighted. And it's, and it's kind of ironic that they were never part of the ACP, you know, because uh, I think the ACP definitely needs to learn a lot from them in terms of like how to properly uh, sort of indigenize uh, the uh, the Armenian struggle. Yeah, excellent. And I'm I'm curious about how you've been kind of relating the overlap of different uh, activists within Armenia after the end of the Soviet Union, and mentioning a little bit as well of, of like their overlap with Palestine as well. Uh, I guess just as as like a, a relational note, um, perhaps like. To what extent do you see a lot of Armenians kind of participating in, in other anti-colonial struggles like this, like particularly in Palestine? Yes, yeah, so Armenians in the Palestinian struggle, um, now don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that besides, um, besides like just Arabs in, in, in Palestine, besides Palestinian Arabs, Armenians, prior to uh, Zionism were the largest minority in, in Palestine. And, and most of them were, uh, though there was already an, an Armenian-Palestinian uh, sort of community that had been, you know, it's been there since uh, like the third century uh, BC. Uh, a majority of them were actually refugees from, from Turkey that, that, that had uh, been uh, invited back um, to, to the Holy Land and they lived alongside uh, Palestinians in, uh, in Palestine. And the Zionist 48 war was also a very big, big part of the Armenian struggle 
then because Armenians, just like Palestinians, I guess I could call them Palestinian Armenians, they're also exiled, many of them. Um, I've, I, I know people whose grandparents were like forced out of uh, Palestine like barefoot. They're just kicked out, same way as, as in Palestine. So Armenians have had a very um, profound, um, intimate relationship with, with Palestine and the Palestinian struggle because it was sort of like the Palestinian Armenians there experienced genocide twice, right? It was the first time in 1915, a lot of them moved from Turkey and then literally like what, 30 years later, 48, uh, they were once again expelled, once again, uh, the, the subject of, of settler colonialism. So there's a lot of very distinct uh, characteristics that we share between the Armenian liberation struggle and the Palestinian liberation struggle. Armenians have taken part in the intifadas um, the um, Armenian Christian community has always been very uh, sort of anti-Zionist, has always been very pro-Palestinian um, pa liberation. And it's something that uh, Armenians hold very dear to, to our heart. You know, it, it's, a, it's probably, at least in my mind, I think the Palestinian struggle is like the closest that we have, uh, besides, of course, the other ethnicities that were um, subject to the Armenian genocide, such as Greeks, Assyrians, and uh, and uh, and the Yazidis, I think just besides that direct correlation, the Palestinians are probably the next up um, in terms of how we how we relate to settler colonialism and uh, and imperialism. Great, thanks so much. And I, I guess to then take this to very recently, of course, which is the ongoing conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan as of 2020, the continued conflict over, over Artsakh and Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, yeah, just let us know a little bit more about kind of the, the situation and, uh, and as well, I'm very curious about the policy of the Armenian communists towards this situation. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, very good question. So. We have to first build a little bit of context on sort of like what's going on in, in Artsakh uh, to sort of then understand what the position of the ACP is on, on the struggle. So uh, the first thing to note is that, uh, just, just, just to throw it out there, uh, just so uh, more people know, uh, the, the difference between Artsakh and Karabakh, right? I'm sure you've heard both many times, but uh, it basically refers to the same thing. It's, 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 the, same, uh, it's the same region, but Karabakh is the Turkish um, slash Iranian slash Russian term for it, while Artsakh is the Armenian term for it. Uh, so we generally use it interchangeably, um, but you can imagine that there's like a very specific connotation with, uh, with both words. And the second thing to note is that it's also very important that um, to, to know that the Armenian Azerbaijan that, that, that is not the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict, right? It's a, it's a struggle for liberation, right? It's a struggle for, uh, against genocide, a struggle against occupation. So, uh, and I, I can share why that is. So basically going back to when the caucus broke out, um, broke away from, from Russia as the Transcaucasian Democratic Federative, Federative Republic, it's a, it's a mouthful, uh, or the uh, TDFR, uh, and then the subsequent breakup of that into the Georgian, Azerbaijani, and uh, Armenian republics in 1918. Um, Azerbaijan claimed Karabakh as part of their own republic. However, since Azerbaijan was basically a vassal of, uh, of Ottoman expansionist policies at the time, um, to avoid more massacre that was happening at, at the time, the Armenians then organized, the Armenians there in Karabakh organized into the People's Republic of Karabakh. Uh, but three months later, it fell under Ottoman military occupation until the Ottomans retreated following the end of World War I. And then this is the moment where the British Empire stepped in. And, uh, and wanting Baku oil and Baku gas, uh, the Azerbaijanis said, of course, uh, but only if you support our territorial claims. So uh, despite the fact that Karabakh was de facto independent, Azerbaijan appointed a British-backed landowner and, uh, and Turkish nationalists by the name of uh, Khosrov Sultanov as governor general of Karabakh. And uh, Britain forced the Armenians to submit under occupation, despite the fact that resistance was high and hundreds of Armenians were being slaughtered by uh, Turkish and, and, uh, and Kurdish militias. 
And it came to a point that in 1920, the Azerbaijani army initiated a total eradication of all Armenians from, uh, from Karabakh, beginning in the cultural capital of the region in uh, Shushi, where the entire Armenian district was burned down. Uh, it's been dubbed as Armenia's Pompeii. And uh, 20,000 Armenians were slaughtered or exiled following, you know, following an additional 10,000 Armenians and surrounding villages and, and, uh, and towns. And this was only stopped by the Red Army marching in and, and putting an end to that, uh, to that bloodshed. And in the years following, despite the fact that the Bolshevik administration, they actually voted on Karabakh becoming uh, part of the Armenian SSR. But two days later, it was actually uh, it was it was reversed, and basically, central Soviet authorities stated that we'll just be keeping the pre-Soviet borders, and those will be final. Uh, despite the fact that, as I just went over, those borders were uh, were only determined by British imperialism and and by genocide. So um, then, you know, the Karabakh movement um, of uh, of, re of, re of reunification was reintroduced by the 60s uh, following discrimination against the Armenians in Azerbaijan, uh, leading up to the many pogroms that I just shared previously in Sungayat and uh, Janza and Baku, and then finally the Artsakh Liberation War in 1992. Now, knowing all of this, sort of where does the ACP stand on it? And um, Basically, to, to put it shortly, the ACP, especially in the post-Soviet period, has fallen very deeply into revisionism and uh, capitulation, right, of, of, of Western submission, particularly. Uh, the Armenian Communist Party has declared that while the liberation struggle for Artsakh was the best thing that Armenians had done in the last 30 years, something I agree with, they were also very... Uh, they're very pro-diplomacy and, you know, calling upon international law and the UN, uh, while I take more of like, uh, more of like the Kanafani approach, right, you know, uh, there's no such thing as peace talks, it's capitulation, it's like a conversation between the sword and the neck, right, very, uh, very poetically stated. Uh, Monte Melkonyan, uh, someone I mentioned earlier, he really understood that the height of the Armenian struggle for liberation primarily resides first and foremost in the struggle for Artsakh, right? And this is a trend that I personally follow, and, uh, and I do believe that most anti-imperialists should as well. Great, and, and I'm curious about kind of the, so you mentioned the sort of like revisionism of the Communist Party today, and I guess just in the, in the development since that, that has occurred and kind of in the politics uh, of Armenia as well. How much of a say does the Communist Party really have over the politics of Armenia? Like, are they kind of an influential uh, player within the politics or or not so much? And, and then I guess, like, to what extent do they, you know, disagree with the government or kind of like, you know, contest the government's position on the matter? And then I'm curious beyond that is, you know, if the traditional uh, party is kind of like, taken this non or, or, you know, revisionist or sort of pro-imperialist position. Uh, is there an alternative kind of, not necessarily a political party, but a movement or an organization that represents more clearly kind of the demands of a Marxist-Leninist and anti-imperialist uh, movement in Armenia? Yeah, of course. So all, so all great questions there. So um, the ACP currently has um, has never had a seat in the Armenian Parliament, and uh, not not before and, and not since uh, you know since 1991. Um, but there's actually a very interesting dynamic that that I do want to talk about that that I do want to share in in regards to this. So, um, for example, the the ACP sort of like what well, what are they standing on? Right, they're standing on a very uh, pro-Russia program. Right to to do uh, to develop closer ties with Russia, uh, it's called on the rejection of, of market reforms. Uh, they do promote um, market socialism, you know, hence it's hence it's revisionism. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's still a very sort of like copy paste typical left wing party, and 
though, of course, you know, that might be better than the alternative, uh, very, very liberal parties, it's not revolutionary and it's especially not very indigenized, right? Because it's only like these very generic left-wing positions, um, but it's, it's, there's nothing very specific to the Armenian struggle. It's not, there's not a, there's not a very strong Armenian particularity to it. Uh, for example, there's a very, very limited discussion or plan for the liberation of Artsakh. There's a very, uh, very, very little material on the right to return to our, to our indigenous lands occupied by Turkey. Uh, something Monte Melkonyan has written a lot about. There's very little on how we could transform our church tenants into, into liberation theology, right? Uh, like how during the genocide, actually many priests led, led the struggle and led the resistance against the Turkish army. This, is, this trend is sort of just forgotten. And uh, because of this reasons, uh, the Armenian Communist Party is sort of just treated as just another pro-Russia party, which, you know, honestly, I don't even, I don't even deny. Uh, and it's not even, and he, here's sort of that interesting dynamic that I wanted to, to bring upon. Because it's not even that Armenians aren't pro-USSR. In fact, Armenians overwhelmingly are. Like, for example, according to uh, a 2016 Pew Research report, Armenia is the most anti-dissolution um, ex-Soviet Republic polled across all age groups. 79% of the Armenian population polled believe that the, that the dissolution of the USSR was a negative thing. This, this includes 74% of 18 to 34 year olds, uh, which is pretty outstanding because uh, you know, it's usually the younger people that are more sympathetic to, uh, to, to reaction and, uh, and, and, and to liberalism. And uh, these numbers are even higher than in Russia. So you know, Armenia is even more anti-dissolution than, than in Russia itself. And uh, in, in Russia, I believe the number is 69% compared to Armenia's uh, 79%, so the whole 10% more. Uh, furthermore, 38% of Armenians polled had positive views of Stalin, which is the third highest of any of the ex-republics. And only 13% had positive views of Gorbachev. It is the most anti-Gorbachev ex-Soviet Republic polled uh, in, that, uh, in that Pew Research report. Yet despite this, despite everything I just said, uh, the ACP has zero seats in parliament, right? and never has since 1991, as, as I just described. And it really, if you ask any Armenians about it, they don't even really have a strong view of the ACP, which I think further sort of shows evidence that it's that dogmatic approach of the party and that uh, lack of indigenization is what's shooting itself in the foot, right? Because Armenians are not really, are not really sympathizing with it, despite the fact that like all the right blocks are, are in the right place, right? They're you know pro-Soviet. They're uh, they would uh, prefer uh, that system back. Yet the actual party that that uh, so-called the so-called socialist party has no support. So it's a very interesting dynamic, very interesting um, contradiction. But again, I think it just boils down to the fact that it's just not an indigenized communist party. There's there's nothing specific to our struggle that is in the rhetoric of that party. It's just like a copy paste, typical generic uh, left-wing party. And in terms of like any alternatives, not really to, to tell you uh, the truth, um, Armenia's uh, political system since 1991 has been dominated uh, by the neoliberals as, as all the post-Soviet states. Um, there is the, of, of course, the contradiction between the more like pro-European neoliberals and then there's the pro-Russian neoliberals. Um, basically, all of the um, Armenian leaders since, 99, since 1991 have been part of the pro-Russian uh, camp until, uh, until Pashinyan's administration in 2018. Uh, he took more of the pro-Western uh, sort of trend. Um, but still, they're all, all neoliberals. Um, both sides, doesn't really matter. And there really isn't an alternative party. Um, there, there are a couple other communist parties, um, but again, none of them have any roles, have any seats in parliament, so not really any any uh, sort of institutional um, sort of alternative. And I guess my, my last question would be on kind of the politics of Russia 
um, in in Armenia today and kind of the the reaction to and position on uh, Russia and Ukraine kind of you know what what have you been seeing from that and I I'm curious about the Communist Party's position but also just in general like Armenians positions on it and I guess if you could think like what a what a Marxist Leninist position would be from an Armenian perspective on the situation considering Armenia's close ties to Russia so again very good question so the ACP the Armenian Communist Party in terms of uh, in terms of Ukraine has definitely taken a very anti-NATO stance uh, which is great you know NATO is obviously an imperialist organization and uh, there have been a number of anti-NATO rallies led by the ACP in Armenia though you know to be completely honest they weren't even that you know too significant um, but with Russia in general, though, the ACP is, of course, rather very pro. The ACP is very sort of EU skeptic, has even promoted the idea of Armenia joining the Union State, which is, which is the organization uh, that unites uh, Russia with Belarus on multiple areas of, of cooperation and, and, uh, and integration. And, but that's just like the party itself. But in terms of like just Armenians, like just knowing Armenians, their position on the war, there is a very, um, how should I word this? Um, there's a very strong repulsion, I guess, uh, away from the Ukrainian government because Ukraine has been very outspoken against the struggle for independence of Artsakh and has sided and has armed Azerbaijan on multiple occasions. Uh, the Actually, just literally like two or three weeks ago, um, when there was another like flare up in, in, in the border, uh, when, when Azerbaijan sort of uh, occupied another village, it was, it was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, the Ukrainian parliament official Twitter released a statement uh, saying that, that they support uh, the, uh, the Azerbaijani incursion into our territory, which is uh, crazy because all the Armenian villagers were exiled and like you get another case of ethnic cleansing. This was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so Ukraine has had a very pro-Azerbaijan stance. Uh, there's even allegations that Ukraine even gave Azerbaijan its um, phosphorus gas that they used to burn down Artsakh forests during the 2020 war, up to, I think, 4.4 um, acres, no, 4.4, like 100 acres, I think, something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but a very large number of of our forests were, were burned down from, from chemical weapons. And there's some allegations that it was actually Ukraine that provided it to them. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, some people say, no, you know, Azerbaijan had that previously, whatever. Um, but there's definitely a lot of like bad blood between uh, Ukraine and Armenia, despite the fact that I think there's half a million Armenians that reside in Ukraine. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure there's half a million or, or somewhere around there. So there's even a large Armenian um, Armenian diaspora community in Ukraine, but despite this, Ukraine is very has always held that anti-Armenian liberation struggle. And in terms of what Marxist-Leninists should generally should should generally stand in terms of the war, especially considering our our closer ties with uh, with Russia, my general sort of um, belief in in terms of uh, the Russian intervention in, in Ukraine is that any action against NATO and against Western imperialism, right, against the, um, the coup that occurred in, in Ukraine in 2014, it's a net positive. But I wouldn't go as far as saying, like, yeah, you know, you got 100% support Russia in, in its war, right? Because at the end of the day, it's still, while Russia has had a very large part in curbing. Western imperialism, at the end of the day, it's it's still uh, not the country to fully, you know, stand stand by, in, in my opinion. So while I don't completely endorse the war on Ukraine, I think it's at least good that some action against NATO is being taken. And at the end of the day, this is what anti-NATO action looks like, right? We can't just be, oh yeah, I'm anti-NATO, I'm anti-NATO. And then finally, when when a country fights back against NATO, you know, you can't be like, oh yeah, 
I'm not going to support this. So there's a very strong, like, there's a very strong balance that needs to be taken where we understand that fighting against NATO is important, um, but also understanding that um, its broad approach by Russia uh, should not be 100% endorsed. Well, thank you so much. And, and I, I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, and I think it's also interesting to compare, uh, as you were mentioning, Azerbaijan's very close ties to Turkey, a NATO member, yeah. um, which, which definitely play a role in kind of the, you know, the alignment of Armenia and Azerbaijan and uh, on the broader kind of like world conflict. My very last thing is I would ask like any book recommendations or any recommendations if people want to learn more about the history of communism in Armenia, in particular, the different figures you mentioned earlier, um, who were kind of like, you know, building on this theory with with action with praxis, um, and like more resources about them, and just any other like, you know, interesting details that you would want people to know about with the history of Marxism Leninism in Armenia. Yeah, I would 100% recommend uh, Monte Melkonyan's uh, "The Right to Struggle." Now, don't don't try to buy it because it's. I think it's like, like every time I try to to find it on on online, it'd be like over hundred dollars. It's like it's yeah. not really published anymore. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure it's available on LibGen for free. Uh, so it's it's called "The Right to Struggle." It wasn't. Um, it's not like a book written by Monte Melkonyan. It's actually just a collection of his letters and other speeches and, and whatnot uh, collected by his brother, uh, because I'm pretty sure it was um, compiled uh, like around the time of his death. Um, but I, I think it was actually finished before he died, but he, he like he died by the time it was like mass published. But I'm not 100% sure on that, but I would definitely recommend that because he goes a lot in sort of like, you know, all my critiques of the Armenian Communist Party, he sort of makes up for it. Where, it's a very specific, um, uh, very specific, um, the word is leaving my mind, uh, application of Marxism, of Marxism, Marxism, Leninism to the condition of, uh, of Armenia. So that's one book that I would recommend. Another that I would recommend, it's actually, here it is. It's actually, uh, if I could find the other one. I have so many books around me, you wouldn't even believe it. Um, so I've got one book over here. I'm trying to find where that second one I would have put. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll just say the title. But the first book is uh, Confiscation and Destruction, uh, The Young Turk Seizure of Armenian Property. It's actually written by, um, by a Turkish academic. And the other book that he wrote, um, it's called um, um the, the name of the book oh here is the book here is the book it's called the making of modern turkey a nation and state in eastern anatolia 1913 1950 right over here um i would try to pronounce his name but i feel like i would totally butcher it because it's, it's a turkish name um but it's uh i guess it's uger umit unger um he is a liberal so he's actually not a socialist he's not a communist but the history of the development of Turkish nationalism, I think it's so important in understanding why the genocide happened and uh, you know, what role does that have in, in, in the development of, of capitalism specifically, because there was actually a lot about that in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the Armenian genocide. And honestly, there's so many other books uh, to, to talk about. Most of them are mostly focused on the Armenian genocide. Uh, and there's not, there's actually not many that even I have found that are specific about the Soviet era because most of them are, are in the Armenian language. I do actually have, I recently found on eBay, uh, the collected works of Stepan Shahumyan, which was the other guy that I mentioned. Uh, and English is not available. Um, I'm not even sure if, if any of you guys could get the copy because uh, I spent a lot of money to get this from eBay. Uh, because there's no PDF available online. There's no English translation. So I'm, I'm actually slowly working on translating this myself. Uh, it's, it's a collected works, yeah. Cool. Uh, so I'm looking forward to fully um, uncovering 
uh, his writing. Um, but but definitely the, the first recommendation I gave, Monte um, Melconian, The Right to Struggle, something I would 100% uh, recommend. And uh, I do I do talk about the Armenian struggle a lot on my Twitter. Um, I got my first Twitter banned, um, but my uh, my second Twitter is um, ML Zulist Theory. Uh, that is mine. Uh, so that's M L T S U L I S T and then theory. Uh, so uh, if you want to hear more about the Armenian liberation struggle and other such liberation struggles, I would uh, I would recommend you follow me there. And besides that, thank you so much for having me on. It was definitely a pleasure to uh, you know talk about uh, Armenia and the uh, Armenian struggle and the history of socialism here. And I just appreciate your time. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this was an excellent, excellent interview. And and uh, I, I learned a lot. I, I didn't know, to be honest, a lot about Armenia before this. And I feel like I learned a lot more about it um, just by talking to you. So uh, I'm going to definitely stay in touch. And, and I think in the future, I'd love to reach back out, potentially do another interview about any range of subjects, like, you know, just anything that you're that you're reading in particular, stuff you're translating. If you ever just want to talk about it, just hit me up on Twitter and, and we can okay. up on Zoom and record something. All right. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take care. Right, have a good rest of the day. See ya. Thanks. Bye.